Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Ian Abernethy Podcast. You can watch videos and listen to other podcast episodes by visiting www.ianabernethy.com. So, without further ado, here's Ian Abernethy. Welcome to the longest podcast we've ever done. <laughs> I'll explain why it's so long in a moment, and I promise you we'll get back to regular-sized podcasts next month. Uh, but for this month, um, it follows on from last month. And uh, last month we discussed the grading system, the black belt, the pros and cons of the grading system. Uh, as a result of uh, that discussion, I got quite a few people contacting me saying, well, you know, how do you do it? You know, how do you set up your syllabus? How, uh, what do you think a black belt should be able to do? Um, so that's what this month's podcast is all about. And for those who train with me regularly, you know, there's, there's two kind of things that I teach, really, two things uh, that, I, that I can offer. Uh, one of them is my approach, um, and the other one is my method. Uh, the approach is what I dare offer at seminars and things. You know, it's not me telling you, you know, you must do this. It's saying, this is how I approach karate, this is what I do. Uh, hopefully bits of it will be useful for your own personal approach, and you can add you know, bits of it to whatever bits you find useful to what you do. So I'm not telling people how to do what they do, because what they do is probably fine as it is. And what I'm offering, hopefully, is, is some elements that they can add to it and um, improve uh, improve what they do. So that, that's what I kind of do at the seminars. What I do in my own dojo is different. In my own dojo, I teach my method, um, as distinct from the approach. And the method is that the details of this is exactly what I teach. This is how I throw it, show them how to throw a punch. This is how I teach them how to generate power. These are the exact grappling drills that we do. These are the exact bunkai drills that we do, pad work drills we do it's it's the, the the detail so in this podcast we're kind of um, mainly starting to talk about what i do specifically and i just want to make it clear that i'm not saying this is you know what you need to do i'm saying this is what i do and hopefully you know you can take the bits from my method um to that suit your approach if, if, if you can see what i mean there so we start the podcast by discussing broad brush stuff the things that i think a syllabus uh, should include um, uh, and obviously that's reflected in my syllabus in a broad brush way and then the next thing we do in the second half of the podcast is we discuss some specifics about how i enact these broad principles on my syllabus so i you know i hope that you find it um uh, of value and of uh, of interest but just before we do that, I've got something I just want to um, share with you. I asked um, Stephen McCann of uh, Kyokushin in Edinburgh. Um, uh, great guy, Stephen. They've um, done quite a bit of work at Stephen's uh, dojo. And, uh, nice people, really like him and his group. And I asked him if he could send me a paragraph or two about him so I could put a link from my website to his website. Um, so Stephen, in all seriousness, uh, sent me this. And the reason I'm, he knows I'm reading this to you, by the way, so it's not without his permission. But the reason I'm doing this is that it's, I think it's just really funny, and I think it's great when martial artists don't take themselves too seriously. We take our martial arts very seriously, but we can have a laugh along the way, you know, and we don't take ourselves seriously. So I'll share this with you. So this is what Stephen sent to me when I asked him, in all seriousness, could he send me a paragraph about him so I could put a link to his website from my website? He said... Well, every once in a while, people ask me about Stephen and his discombobulating mental powers. Is he part robot? Will he hurt us? Is he really Colonel Sanders' son? And on and on and on. Well, I can't, I can't tell you everything you're dying to know about Ubermensch, as the Germans call him, but I can tell you something. To this very day, believe it or not, Stephen does not like to be shocked with a cattle prod. <laughs> when, we got to, when he got to be about mm, this tall, Stephen started to practice karate. He knew that one day his skill would transcend the physical, and far beyond that of the mere mortals that strive to injure him, and it would be free to extract his terrible revenge. 
When he got to be um, about this tall, he was awarded 11th Dan by the greatest warrior to have ever lived in a ceremony on the moon. The title that went along with the 11th Dan was that of Galactic Protector and was given to him by Muta Masashi, Thor and Yoda. <laughs> Stephen can still be seen patrolling the galaxy's Halley's Comment, stopping an invasion for, of those lizard things from V. <laughs> <laughs> and he sent me a serious one after that, you know, so I, I did get the serious one, and the link's now up there on the site as well, so, um, yeah, but brilliant, it was great that, we, me and Helen were just kind of working through the emails that morning, and uh, saw that one, and it gave us both proper, good, full-on belly laughs, brilliant stuff, so thank you Stephen for that, much appreciated, right, back to the podcast, <laughs> um, what uh, I did for this one, some of them I very carefully plan out, some of them I write out word for word, on this particular one I just picked up my syllabus and started talking, which is why it's so incredibly long, so you've got a, um, a full-on kind of stream of consciousness thing here, <laughs> but you know, I hope within all that, you know, I hope there's still some very useful things in it for you, and that you enjoy listening to it, okay, so that's enough from me, I'll hand you over to me, okay, enjoy what is, uh, as I said, the longest podcast we've ever done. Okay, in this podcast we're going to discuss what I feel are must-haves on uh, syllabuses and for grading criteria as well. Um, now, of course, you know, people have different views on these things, uh, but th these are things that I feel that if we are claiming to teach holistic martial arts, uh, self-protection, uh, things that have genuine relevance to uh, the modern day, then these are things that we need to be including in our training and need to be covering. Um, and the first thing I think where a lot of schools go wrong is they place far too much emphasis on fighting and then claim that they're teaching self-defense. Now, it's a bit like, you know, teaching someone to, you know, I'll teach you how to crash land a plane and say I'm teaching you to be a pilot. Well, you know, you're not. You're just teaching one skill, the skill you use when everything else has gone wrong. Um, so if we are tr claiming that what we're teaching has got uh, relevance to self-protection, then we need to be including uh, awareness, avoidance, and escape uh, uh, methods in our uh, teaching. And people, students need to be assessed on these as well, of course, to make sure they've got understanding. So awareness and avoidance are without a doubt the most important aspect of self-protection. All the physical techniques are worthless if they're divorced from threat awareness and a healthy attitude to personal safety. So if an individual goes about their business in a way that exposes them to danger, by which you know, they've got a poor attitude to the personal safety, or if they're unaware of uh, potentially dangerous situations as they develop, you know, a poor awareness, um, then you know, the events are going to overtake them before they have the opportunity to flee or make use of their uh, physical techniques. Um, and I'll go into the ins and outs of those you know, a little bit more and how I kind of manifest them on my syllabus, but just to talk on, on a few of those. A few points on those. So one is, you know, awareness. I, I see that I, I watched, you know, something recently where the guy was talking about the importance of awareness, and what he actually described was vision, not awareness. Just because you see something doesn't mean you'll recognise it as a threat. So we need to educate our uh, students, and they need to be good at this, to recognise when a situation is turning bad. You know, being able to kind of trust their instinct and and spot when things are uh, are going wrong. You know, when people talk awareness, you often hear them talk about things like you know peripheral vision and whatever else, but that's that's not it. Awareness is being um, being able to see when situations are developing, when things aren't quite right, when things aren't as they should be, um, and we need to kind of educate students on that, you know, through our um, as part of their martial education. Um, avoidance skills, you know, we need to. We'll come to this a bit more later too, but you know, as part of avoidance, we need to be able to dissuade situations. 
Um, we need to un let them use the, the voice, and we'll talk about that a bit more later as well. And actually practicing, physically practicing escape should be included as well. Uh, again, in the vast majority of, of self-defense training I've seen, what they're actually teaching is fighting, which, which obviously can be part of it. But part of it as well, a bigger part of it should be, okay, this situation has got physical and we should have the skills to end the confrontation should we need to but you know it's not about for example okay like i end up a guy ends up with a, a grip on me okay what well, i don't want my students doing is looking for a throw and take him to the ground and choke him out you see that's fighting when they're doing the grabbing what i want them to practice is being able to break away from that grip so they can flee and run you know so we need those set of skills as well um, another one, classic example is running away. We, I hear this a lot, you know, in self-defense, first thing you should do is run away. You should run away. Well, if we're going to do that, shouldn't we practice it? You know, you'd, you'd never, you know, if you had the guy that was wanting to do competition karate, what we'd never do is say, okay, um, he's a, a roundhouse kick, for example. It's a great little kick. This, you can score points with it in competition. It's great, you know. Oh, thanks. You know, should I, should I practice that then, sensei? Oh, no, don't, don't practice it. Just use it when it's needed. And that's essentially what we do with running away. We say, okay, we want it to just run away. But, <coughs> excuse me. But there's ways and means with which to run away as well. It's not just simply a matter of kind of, you know, jogging off. Um, we need to be uh, making sure that we disengage in the right way so we don't expose our back. We need to be aware that we're very likely to have tunnel vision when we're under stress. So as we get distance from one opponent, we need to make sure we ingrain the habit of looking for others, looking for other enemies, so we can escape efficiently. And above all else, we need to practice it. Um, we need to practice breaking away from people, running away to designated areas, bursting through crowds, uh, protecting other people so um, so they can get away. Um, all that kind of stuff needs to be included, and again, we'll we'll, we'll touch on that later. So yeah, if, for an holistic syllabus, it should definitely be including elements of awareness, avoidance, and escape. The next thing a syllabus should uh, should definitely include. Uh, is some knowledge of the law. Uh, so some 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 knowledge of the the laws it relates to um, uh, to your locality. Um, and the reason, I mean, I, I we spend a lot of time discussing the law in my dojo, uh, and the reason we do this um, is so that the students thoroughly understand that it's something they can forget about, <laughs> which which may sound a bit of a paradox, but the fact is, in the UK anyway, I believe we have some fantastic self-defence laws. If you actually look at the laws themselves, and you look at the way they're actually implemented, it's nothing like the sensationalized uh, accounts you get in the media. People simply are not being prosecuted for defending themselves. It's a myth. You also aren't expected to judge to a nicety the level of force used. That's a myth. In UK law, you are allowed to strike first if you honestly believe there's a threat uh, coming, even if you were mistaken about that threat. You're allowed to rely on your own mistaken uh, understanding in court. The, the, the law of the UK does not expect you to have a 2020 um, hindsight, you know, before the event's even taken place. So um, uh, the only exception being is if you're voluntarily intoxicated. So if you made a mistake because, you know, you got drunk and you'd misunderstood what was going on, well, that's your fault. Okay, so that's established in case law as well. But um, the, the point is, what we should do is we should educate our students about the ins and outs of the law as well, so they, they know what uh, their rights and obligations are and in the UK and certainly the main reason I teach it is because the students go right we know the score we don't need to worry about the, the hype and the stories and the, you know politicians looking to make points or the media looking to get a cheap story we know what the law is we know how it actually works on the ground we know we have a right to defend ourselves and we know that the right the law in the UK at least understands the reality of the of the situation so we learn about it so we can effectively forget about it 
Um, uh, so, so uh, yeah, law should be included. If you're not including um, uh, discussions on the law within your syllabus and training, then I would suggest that it's not, um, it's not, it's falling short, big style. It's falling short, big style when it comes to self-protection. Um, the, the next thing that I think every syllabus should include, and I think this is an obvious re one really, but um, it, it's, it's, it's strangely absent from a lot of karate training, is uh, we should be including uh, power generation and the use of impact equipment. If I was to put a figure on it, I would say that um, only 5% of schools make use of impact equipment in the UK for, 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 for karate, for, for the ones that I've seen. Um, and of course, that's, that's a bizarre thing to me, the idea that we can learn to effectively punch things without punching things. How can you learn to swim without getting in the water? You know, it's, just, it's, it's impossible. You would never go to a judo club where they'd say, oh, we don't actually throw them, we just unbalance them a little bit, you know, which is the equivalent. You know? And obviously, it's, you know, it's not acceptable to be punching uh, your fellow students full force in the face, so we need to be using kind of impact equipment. Um, air striking, air punching alone, just, just won't do it. You know, it, it, there's just no way you'll develop effective striking skills by, by doing that. Um, and the only way that you're going to develop the ability to hit hard is by hitting things hard. Now, I mean, it seems obvious to me, but there's, there's a massive amount of groups that, that, that don't do it. Um, so, you know, we need to be using our in makiwara, if you like using makiwara's punch bags, focus mix, kick shields, tie pads. Um, you need to be making uh, use of any or all of those. And also, we need to be making use of them in a way that's relevant to us. Uh, for example, focus mitts. I know a lot of uh, people who make use of focus mitts groups that, that do. Uh, where they do, they often make use of them in a boxing style, which is nothing wrong with that. You know, that can be part of it as well. But we need to remember as karateka, we'll be using elbows, knees, hammer fists, groin kicks, all that kind of stuff. And that needs to be included in our pad work, uh, pad work drills as well. So the next thing, I think, obviously, if we're doing forms, um, it's probably an obvious one coming from me, this one, but if we are practicing um, kata or forms, then we should be working the applications of those forms as well. Um, to, to me, kata without applications is a pretty pointless activity. Um, and through doing those, um, those, those forms and, and, and the applications with them, we ensure that we have a very holistic syllabus. Um, because the old style karate, if you like, the old style martial arts, the, the kata is their syllabus. So by uh, breaking down the kata and using those techniques, we naturally start to include a lot of close range fighting, controlling limbs, uh, gripping skills, takedown techniques, attacking weak points. Um, you get a lot of good self-defense stuff. So, I mean, on my personal syllabus, um, the vast majority of the physical side of the self-defense things just come straight from kata. We don't have a separate thing where we have bunkai, if you like, and then self-defense techniques, because they're one and the same to us. Um, one other thing that I think every syllabus should make sure that it develops and includes is uh, combative physical conditioning. So, um, it, again, this is kind of one of my pet prejudices, really, I guess. But, you know, you shouldn't really be seeing martial artists who are way out of shape. It just shouldn't happen. Because the, the, the fact is, no matter how much technique and knowledge you've got, it's your body that kind of puts that into action. So if your body's in a poor physical condition, um, it just won't happen. And also, if you're in poor physical condition, it's normally indicative uh, um, of some underlying things. You know, if you're not watching your diet and you're not exercising regularly enough, um, you haven't got the kind of mental discipline, I would suggest. And that's going to obviously permeate its way through through the martial arts. I mean, there are exceptions. There's guys who've, you know, kind of paid the dues and as time's gone on, they've got an injury or something and haven't been able to, able to train the way they want. But if you're in good health, there's no reason why you shouldn't be, you know, fit as well. Um, and also what we need to understand is that fighting, defending ourselves, is incredibly stressful. Um, so we need to expose our bodies to stress. 
Now, when you're in a kind of heavy anaerobic state, um, the, the, all those sensations are not too dissimilar to what you get in, in conflict. You feel weak, you feel sick, you'd rather be doing anything else, everything in your body screaming at you to stop and, and not do anything. Um, but you develop the mental resilience to, to over, override that. So when we do, in our training, we do our heavy anaerobic drills, you know, part of it's developing the fitness, but a bigger part is developing the mental resilience to actually do those kind of drills and push through it. Um, to, to, to keep on going and, and, and not to quit. Um, one little suggestion on that as well is if you're, if you're training and you find that you never quit in training, you're not training hard enough, <laughs> is the other side of it. You know, you should be pushing your limits. So if, you, if you're not quitting, if you never get halfway through a drill and think, I've had enough. Now, obviously, we don't want to do that, as I've said, you know, but, but the, the fact is that if you never, ever do that, it's more likely that you're not pushing yourself hard enough. Um, and on gradings, again, we want to see that the student, we want to see them struggle. We want to see them in, in a physically and mentally stressed state, and we need to see how that they're, um, they're going to, to deal with that. Now, and, and again, for me, in my, me personally, I wouldn't get them doing wind sprints or push-ups or sit-ups to do that. As I said, it needs to be combative physical conditioning. So a far better way for us is you know, high-intensity sparring, high-intensity pad work. Um, rather than doing, you know, like I said, star jumps or whatever, or that kind of stuff. Um, and it also should be remembered as well that when we're talking about combative physical conditioning, um, it's not really about, um, you know, doing 15-minute long rounds or something along them kind of lines. It's not about how long you can go. It's about how much damage you can do in as short a time as possible. So it's how much you can get out of your body in as short a time as you can, uh, you know, Talking from a self-defense perspective, you know, I think it was Dave Turton who said, um, and apologies, Dave, if it wasn't you, but it's a great line. I'm sure it was Dave, where he said, you know, any fight that goes longer than 10 seconds, you're probably losing, you know. Um, so we, we need to, from the self-defense perspective, it's all about kind of getting that massive aggression, that massive explosion of force, and that ability to get lots of energy out of you and into the opponent in as short a time possible. Uh, not the ability to keep a mediocre pace uh, long term. Although you will do that, you know, as part of the, the other benefits of, of martial arts, we want to have, um, you know, fitness benefits and we want to know that we can, even if it does go to a long drawn out fight, we want to know we can last that. But first and foremost, what we want is that, that real kind of high intensity, heavily anaerobic, e explosive forms of, uh, of physical conditioning. One other thing I think that a, a, a syllabus should have uh, is training in all the combative uh, uh, methods, okay, or ranges. I don't really like using the term ranges because it doesn't really apply to, to human beings, you know. There's not that great a difference between, you know, punching range and kicking range. You know, we're only talking about a kind of few inches and we still, you know, depends how you do things. My punching range and my kicking range, because of the way I kick and because I've got short legs, is more or less exactly the same. Um, certainly, you know, from a, a sparring perspective as well. So, um, so we need to make sure that we train um, all 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 the ranges. Um, one of the things that we do in our syllabus, this is a thing that I, I took from uh, Peter Considine, is we say that we have seven ranges, and we need to make sure we address all seven. Um, so the first one is talking. You know, in theory, I can bring a guy up and start a fight when he's on the other side of the planet. So talking would be the longest one. But we need to include use of our voice to calm people down, to, to, to intimidate, to um, distract, you know, to set them up for things. You know, voice needs to be practiced. And then we've got kicking. Uh, then we move on to punching after that. Next thing we've got is limb control, what some people would call trapping. 
uh, close range striking, so the headbutting, kneeing, uh, kneeing, elbowing, striking with the forearms, and all that kind of stuff. Um, then we've got vertical grappling, and finally the seventh one would be horizontal grappling. That would be on the ground. Now, how much emphasis we put on each will depend upon the course style and the overall aims, you know. So, for example, for self-protection purposes, we, we don't need to have high-level throwing or high-level kicking or high-level groundwork. Um, we, we need them to be sufficient for the environment in which we're working. Um, but, however, you know, if a syllabus in, ignores an area completely, it'll be found wanting if somebody trained in that syllabus finds them themselves in a situation where they've absolutely no idea what to do. So, as Jeff Thompson said, you know, you can be a tenth than on your feet and a white belt on your back. And I, think it's, I think that's a great phrase, that. I think it's, it's, it's really true. Um, so, as well as training all the combative ranges... Um, in whatever way we do them, you know, in set ways or, you know, semi-compliant ways, we also need to make sure that we do it live as well. Um, most karate sparring tends to be based on competition sparring, even those that don't do competitions. It tends to be kicking and punching, uh, there tends to be very little in the way of grabbing, uh, they tend not to allow any close-range striking, uh, certainly don't allow any groundwork or anything like that. So we need to drill things live as well. It's, it's just not enough to do these things in, in theory. Um, you need to do them live. Uh, there's just no way around that. And um, I sometimes get people arguing that there is, but there's not. There's loads of ways in which you can train safely and holistically, and you need to make sure you include that. And that would include, as well, scenario training. So as well as physically fighting all the different ranges, if you are doing self-defense, you need to develop scenarios. So that would be, you know, people role-playing, playing, playing the, the roles of, of the, the bad guy, um, having other people playing the roles of innocent people you want to protect, of uh, two people fighting, and you can play the role of, you know, trying to break it up or trying to protect one of them who's involved in that, going to rescue someone else. That needs to be included, too. Another big thing that I think all syllabuses should include is multiple opponents. Uh, sporting martial arts are always one-on-one. -on -one. Real situations, however, frequently involve uh, more than one uh, one assailant. Uh, now, now, it should be acknowledged that you know outfighting multiple enemies is very, very difficult. So the emphasis should be placed on escaping uh, from from multiple people. Uh, so, for example, a simple drill or test may involve you know one person escaping from uh, from multiple opponents to a predetermined safe zone in the hall or the dojo. And we do lots of stuff like that, you know. Um, so, again, you, you work what it is with multiples, because that radically changes how you'll fight. So, for example, if the guys in my club are doing a one-on-one -on -one fight, they may very well decide to actively take a clinch, actively take it to the ground and finish it off. And that'll work great in, in that one-on-one -on -one scenario. Um, but as soon as a second person gets involved, what you'll find out through that is if you grab somebody voluntarily, then while you're dealing with the guy that you've grabbed, the other guy flies in and beats the living daylights out of you. So um, when you're fighting multiple guys, it becomes um, more about uh, moving, keeping on your feet, trying to position them, hitting anything that moves. Um, it's not about locking in or focusing on one person. In this situation, you don't aim to dominate one particular person. You aim to dominate the situation. Um, so that one's a, a little bit different, and and it's so important. You need to be including multiple opponent training. Uh, let's not forget, Gichin Funakoshi did this. If you want to read Karate Do, My Way of Life, he talks about uh, about doing that. How he would try and keep people away with kicks and punches as they try and grab him and take him down the ground. He, he tells us that he could um, deal with you know two or three, no problem. When it got to like four, five, six, he'd always find himself uh, upended. And what he said is, I can think of no better way than this to learn to defend against multiple opponents. So Gichin Funakoshi didn't do the old choreographed kind of katabunkai thing, you know, when you've got people 
I hesitate to call it bunkai, but you know what I mean. The people standing on the, the compass points, what he did was he said, okay, let's do it, let's do it live. Another one we need to make sure we've got is armed opponents, okay, armed enemies, all right? Um, now, f for me, I would never make use of a live weapon in training. I know there's arguments that say that you need to kind of do that, but, you know, to me, it's just not worth the risk. The reason being as well, if you think of it this way, a lot of the guys that I do know who say, no, the weapon has to be live, you have to use a real weapon. Well, obviously, there's all kinds of safety implications and possibly legal implications there if your students were to get injured doing that. The other danger is the same people often say you should never, ever face a live opponent. Well, your logic's inconsistent then. So why should the guy come to the dojo to face live opponents? It, well, live weapons. If you're telling them if a guy's got a weapon, never face them. <laughs> but you're telling them they've got to come to the dojo to face people with live weapons. It just doesn't make sense to me. So, um, But you can use, you know, uh, we, we padded sticks, you know, the old rubber knives. You can use them. Um, the other one for weapons defense, we talked about this a bit more in a podcast previously. I think weapons defense is a really bad term because you don't defend yourself against weapons. You defend yourself against a person yielding the weapon. Uh, and the best way to do that is to actually go on the offense. If you can't get away from them, if you can't develop space, go on the offense. So we think more of uh, person attack or person escape rather than, uh, uh, than weapon defense. Um, disarms as well. A person is something that I don't have on the syllabus. I, I don't teach disarms. Simple reason being is that if you drill things live, you get a guy, give him a rubber knife, tell him to keep a tight hold of it. Uh, it's nigh on impossible to get the knife off him. And because you're fixating on the knife, again, same problem. You're trying to defend against the weapon, not the guy yielding it. So we do a lot of stuff on uh, um, preempting when the guy looks like he's going for a draw, preempting if you can't see the hands, jamming the hands to get shots in, uh, moving, running and escaping. Um, we've got a, a kind of set of live drills that we do to do that, but we don't include disarms just because I just don't believe they're, 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 they're pragmatic. Um, and the other thing I think that we need to make sure a syllabus includes as well is an understanding um, of the underlying principles. What I see in a lot of syllabus is you get this uh, monkey see, monkey do thing. So what people can do is they can replicate various movements, um, fine, but they don't necessarily understand them. So I think one thing we want to try and uh, develop is, is understanding as well. So we should have um, um, awareness, avoidance and escape should be included. We should have power generation and the use of impact equipment. We should have the law should be included. If we're doing forms, we should have had the applications to those forms. We should have combative physical conditioning. We should ensure that we train in all the various combative methods, you know, kicking, grappling, punching, talking, all of that. We should make sure that we drill all of it live as well, because just doing it compliantly is just nowhere near enough. We should include scenario training, so we actually as, we drill these things as, as best as realistically uh, as, as you know our um, practicality, safety, and budget allow. You know, we should work on multiple enemies. We should include that we do that. Armed enemies should be included, and we should also make sure that we include uh, assessments of um, uh, underlying principles and underlying uh, understanding. Okay, having discussed the broad outlines of, of what I think a syllabus should include, I'd just like to kind of give a couple of specifics, really, from, from my own syllabus. Uh, I, I know there'll be 
the few listening to this and may be interested in seeing my syllabus in its entirety and uh, unfortunately it's not something I'm prepared to give out so simply because I have had uh, people in the past claim to teach uh, my methods with no connection to me whatsoever um, so I don't want to help them to do that by giving them details of what I actually cover and, and, and teach within my own uh, my own dojo so unfortunately it's just for my own students and, and people I work with closely um, I, I am actually thinking of, of starting to set up some longer term courses so people get into the specifics of what I do because in, in my mind I've always had two things that I offer and teach really there's one is my uh, approach which is a broad ideas of how I look at kata, um, how I include things, the kata-based sparring concept, all that kind of stuff. And you know that's open to everybody to take that approach. Anyone who wants to make use of it can do so, and then uh, you know add that to what they already do. And then I have my method, which is a specific detail of how I personally do everything. Um, so anyway, so when, when we start at um, at tenth Q is where we start. That would be our white belt, and the first grade they're going to go for is is red belt. Uh, where we start off, probably very similar to most karate groups, that we have them doing uh, a number of techniques uh, on the spot. We have them doing the basic kind of karate punch, the vertical fist punch, uh, the aguki, the gidambarai, and the palm heel strike. All of those we get them to do from nahanshi, because I think nahanshi is a great stance to allow you to develop that torque from the feet through the hips into the hand, and also that spiraling um, uh, effect as well. Um, we also do uh, lead hand punch to the head and reverse punch to the head. A lot of people teach reverse punch to the body. Um, to me, that's a competitive thing. We will use reverse punches to the body, but obviously it's far better to hit them in the head. Okay, so that's the off switch. That's where we're going to end fights. So when uh, we teach our students first, it's head shots that we're looking for more than anything else. Uh, we do all the traditional basics. We do do the stepping through lunge punches, the stepping through reverse punches, the stepping through with the Agyuki or the Jodnuki and the Gidambarai. Um, obviously because they form the basics of the kata that they're going to learn uh, later on. Um, so they need these kind of key key parts and they can learn the kata and then obviously that leads to the applications of it. Uh, first kick we teach is groin kick. Again, a, a technique that's often uh, ignored because it can't be used in competition, but no doubt it's a very effective uh, kick. We also teach uh, front kick to the body, and we also have a uh, roundhouse kick as well, which is, is one of the ones that we teach. First combinations I have to do is simply uh, lean and punch, reverse punch. And the way we do it is probably not as simple as, as most people do. Um, well, it's simple, but you know, this, we make sure that it's very effective. You know, I don't just go, okay, hit them with the front hand, hit them with the back hand. There's a way in which we transition from technique to technique to ensure that we generate that torque and have maximum force. So I want them to start learning to move right, right from the very beginning. So when we do that lead hand punch and that reverse punch, there's, there's detail in there about you know, how the hip should kick the movement off, how the, the hip movement for the second punch should begin just as the, the first punch is finishing. Um, so th there's those details there. We also teach uh, um, the lead leg uh, groin kick into reverse punch because we have a, a way of, of combining uh, our hands with our feet which involves a, a particular foot movement. So we get them to learn that foot movement in isolation by doing it with the groin kick and then following up with the reverse punch. So again it's not so much the technique, it's also the transitions between the technique. Uh, right from the beginning, we do pad work. So as well as doing these techniques in the air, they'll also do uh, Tobakomizuki Gakazuki, so that'll be like a jab cross if you like. Uh, they'll do that against the pads. They also do that uh, stepping up into the uh, the lead leg groin kick, sorry, and then the reverse punch, they'll do that on the shields. They do a low leg, uh, level uh, roundhouse kick, uh, so roundhouse kick the thigh on the shields. They'll do the um, power slap. Um, with action trigger, dia action trigger dialogue, so they, they learn already about using the voice. Um, that's what I mean by the action trigger dialogue and being preemptive, as well. And the other one they have is they'll do 90 seconds of moving around. 
jabbing uh, with the lead hand. So that shows me that they're starting to learn on the move how long their, their arms are. Uh, the Kumite, they do spar right from the very very beginning, but the Kumite is very basic. We don't want to freak them out by throwing them in at the deep end too soon. So we have uh, two minutes of lightly flee uh, feeding front hand punches and reverse punches, while the partner just lightly moves and blocks. Um, that's kind of you know, change halfway. Uh, we have a minute of them moving round with the forearm and neck grip, so we start them grappling from the beginning. Uh, we have a minute of them moving round with the the back and triceps grip, um, training uh, changing sides each time. And we also do a two-minute period of having them play for grips as well. So again, they're learning to establish the grips that they'll need to be able to do to strike at close range, to be able to unbalance people and throw. And for every grade that we do, we also have a knowledge test, because as I've just said, you know, we need to make sure they understand what they're doing. So on this one, they have to uh, verbally explain to the uh, panel the importance of awareness, and we also get them to explain uh, Cooper's colour codes, you know, the white, uh, yellow, orange and red, and the threat pyramid, um, and how that relates to that. So we have a, a threat pyramid where underneath it is switched off, the lowest level of the threat pyramid is being aware of threats, threat, of threat awareness, uh, the next stage up is threat evaluation, and the final one is threat avoidance, and that obviously ties up with Cooper's colour codes of white being switched off, yellow being threat awareness, orange being threat evaluation, and red being threat avoidance. And we get them to talk through that and, and what it actually means. So right from the beginning, right from the very the start, we're making sure that they understand it's not just about physical technique. So that's, that's kind of how we start um, with our, uh, our lower grades. Notice there's no kata there as well. They'll start learning kata for the, for the next grade after that. Um, for our first dan, when we do our first dan grading, uh, which on average for our syllabus takes about seven years, you know, it's not a, not a not a quick thing. Um, people, even lower grades, will grade once, twice a year, um, and we don't lose people either. This is the thing I think with grading sometimes people feel that oh I need to keep rewarding students or they just they leave us, but we don't find that because they're learning something in depth and they're enjoying the learning process and they know they're learning something of value getting a little colour belt for it every now and again doesn't really matter. They can feel within themselves they're making progress. We don't need to kind of give them too many artificial goals with that. Um, we do grade, you know, and I've discussed the advantages of the grading syllabus in the, in the last uh, podcast. So by the time we get to first down, right, which again, for me, is first down, that's the basics. You know, but by this time, they should have a, a good understanding, a solid understanding of the basics. Uh, for first down level, we do start with a set of, uh, of basic techniques, line work, because I think it's really important to, to keep that really nice, sharp, coordinated movement, even when we're not worrying about hitting things or the guy hitting us, you know, just to kind of just purely test the level of coordination that they've got. So we run through a variety of, um, of, of techniques for that. They then move on to combinations, and for, although for other grades we have set combinations, for first down it's uh, any three combinations that the uh, grading panel particularly want to choose. And that can be done before as part of the gradings, or it can be ones we just make up on the day. What I'm looking for when I see that as well is most people when they do combinations, they're simply putting techniques end to end, that's not how we do it. When we want people to do combinations, I want to see the way they combine them, the way they keep continuous motion, and the way they ensure that one technique feeds in the next one to ensure maximum speed and, and, and total dominance. So again, it's the transitions that are very, very important. We then do the pad work, so for the, they'll do any three combinations of the panel's choice again on the pads, and these can, could be syllabus combinations or there could be other ones, and they don't have to be the same ones they did in line work. We've got lots of pad work drills, so again at this level we sh they should have done them all. We've got ground drills and multiple drills and we've got a whole host of pad drills, and we should just be able to pick any of them and they should be able to do them very well. 
Once I've done that, we're going to three two-minute rounds on the focus mitts. So the first two-minute round is just using the hands, the second two-minute round is just using the feet, and the third two-minute round is just using the hands and feet. Um, they get about a 45 seconds to a minute between each of those. Once we've done that, they have a two-minute round on the kick shield, uh, and when using the kick shield, it's used hands and feet. So we're looking for those big, powerful kicks and those big, powerful kind of body shots as well. Um, on those pad works, obviously, because of the, the intensity I want them to put into it, they should be quite fatigued, but I want them to drive through. I want to, you know, see that uh, internally a focused aggression there. Uh, I want to see great form and massive impact, you know, um, every single one of them. You know, and often as not, we've done this. When guys are doing downgradings, I want to get up there, I want to hold the pads, I want to feel for myself how hard they're actually hitting. Uh, once I've done that, they do the preemptive striking, which we do for every single grading. Um, so what they do is they do a full role play. It's up to the, the guy who's holding the pads how he's going to set that up. Uh, at a certain point, if it's necessary, uh, what will happen is the guy will kind of decide, okay, I'm going to hit. Um, well, in that case, what the pad holder will do will put a pad where the various, you know, where his head was, and that will allow the guy to hit, and then he can run away. So we do that 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 on there as well. We then move on to kata, so they can do any two pin and kata of the panel's choice. It's up to the grading panel. They'll do nahanshi and kushanku for first down, which isn't many compared to what styles do. But I want my students to learn the kata in depth, and I want them to be of a very high standard. So it's the standard of the kata the depth of understanding that I want, not so much that they know lots of kata. So, you know, even, you know, if you think they've been training there for about, you know, seven odd years or so, that's not a lot of kata I'm asking them to do. They're seven. So it's what, an average of about one a year or something. Okay, and then we move on to the bunkai. So it, we have set bunkai drills for the entire Heian series, for the for Nahanshi and, and everything. But, but at this level, again, at first down, I want to start seeing they, them developing their interpretation of what we, we've, we've taught them. So what they'll do is the uh, we ask them to do two bunkai from each of the five kata, uh, to five pinan kata. Um, one of them, the, I'll pick a particular sequence, and they'll do the set bunkai drill that we do for that sequence. And then what I also want them to do is give a secondary interpretation of that. So that can be their own view of how this movement could be applied, or a variation of what I've shown them, or even the basic bunkai drill with their own little additions. You know, they can add in little slaps and elbows that maybe aren't within the kata, but are still, you know, legitimate uh, to apply. Uh, they then have to do the bunkai from uh, from Nahanshi, um, and again this will be me telling them, okay, show me for this move, and and again we're looking for a combination of their own understanding and um, um, what they've done from uh, uh, combined with previous set stuff they've done from previous gradings. Having done all their uh, bunkai drills, the next thing that they'll do for the grading will be the kion gumite, the wado kion gumite. Um, by this point, they'll have learned uh, one through um, to eight, and we'll you know get them to do a, a selection of those. They will do seven and eight as mandatory because they're the newest ones, and then they'll do you know um, any others that we want to pick for them through one through through six. We don't place a lot of emphasis on these. Uh, we do we do practice them. Personally, I don't believe them to be that uh, pragmatic, but they are very interesting. Um, and they are part of our kind of Wado uh, lineage, and uh, I want to keep that, um, ma mainly because we, when students uh, move away, if they go to other areas, then they've learnt them, you know, and they've got that part of the Wado heritage as well. So we, we do do those. The next thing we're on to is the uh, the grappling section, the Tagumi section. Now, for these ones, by the time we get to this, this level, what we're really looking at is the students starting to choose, because certain grappling methods, everybody will throw a punch in a pretty similar way, okay, to generate power, but there's no doubt that the certain grappling techniques that suit some body types and not others. So we're looking for the student to develop what works for them. We're always looking for, as 
we say individual excellence, what works for the individual. So we'll get them to do um, a series of uh, throws and takedowns, um, but it's up to them which throws and takedowns to choose, because they'll already have learnt plenty by this point, and now it's for them to um, choose the ones that suit them the best and really make them their own. And they've been doing that on a few of the brown belts as well, but we want to see that at this point. Uh, we'll get them to do a selection of uh, choke, strangle, standing arm locks, ground fighting arm locks. Uh, they've got a couple of leg locks to do, um, some escapes from various positions as well. Okay, So they've got a whole host of grappling techniques that they need to be able to demonstrate. But we're looking at this level of them putting their own stamp on everything. Uh, next comes the kumite. So what they'll need to do for this one is they'll do two minutes of uh, a two-minute round of full all-in sparring. So that's kind of everything goes. They can grab, they can grapple, they can go to the ground, they can lock, they can choke, they can strangle, they can do the, the, the whole lot. Um, they'll ne then follow a two-minute round of vertical all-in sparring. So that's everything, but they're not allowed to continue the fight on the ground. Um, and again, what we're looking for here, the reason we do all the different types is because it isolates certain elements, and I want to see those elements brought out. Uh, following that, we'll do a two-minute round of ground uh, all-in sparring, so they can punch, uh, choke, strangle, lock, and they're looking to get a submission uh, on that one. They're looking to get submissions. After that, we have another two-minute round of uh, ground all-in sparring, but on this one, what we're trying to do is one guy's trying to get to his feet all the time, because obviously that's what you want to do in reality, and the other guy's trying to keep him down there and beat the living daylights out of him. Um, the next one we've got is we have a two-minute round of escaping from clinches. So a guy's allowed to grab, secure a grab, and then the other guy has to fight his way out. And it's like I mentioned before, that the reason we want them to do that is because for self-defense purposes, it's not always about getting the best grip. It can be about breaking the grip completely and getting the hell out of there. And once they're broken apart, the panel puts them back together again, and they, uh, they do it again. And the final thing, so that's that's um, five two-minute rounds. Again, they'll get about 45 seconds a minute between each. On the last one, any other type of sparring that we want um, as the panel, we want them to do. The type, the length, the number of rounds, etc., are all up to us. So we might want them to do some weapons work. We might want them to do some multiple opponents work. It just depends on uh, on what we want to see. And at first, Dan, they'll have enough experience that they've done all those kinds of sparring, um, protecting others, all this kind of stuff we do in live sparring, that they'll have had the practice of that, so none of that should be a problem. Uh, for the knowledge test, um, the, prior to doing the physical exam, um, then it, which on average takes about three, three and a half hours, but before then they have to do um, a thousand words, uh, approximately, on what being a black belt should mean, and explain about how the candidate feels about holding that rank. So it's just to get them to reflect on what a black belt uh, should mean. And um, and you know I'm interested to know what the the, the feel what the, the black belt actually means. And they also they're also required to give a talk and a demonstration on the application of low skill methods. Again, this needs to be done before the assessment. Um, by low skill methods, I mean things like gouges and bites and that kind of stuff. So they need to give a talk on a 10 minute talk on those in high risk uh, situations. So 10, 15 minutes, 20 minutes if they like. It's not long. Um, and during that, they need to um, ensure that they tie in the use of low skill methods with performance under stress. Um, and, you know, the fact that, you know, your body's not great at doing kind of complex things when it's under stress. And they also need to kind of clearly explain uh, when such methods would be justifiable and uh, applicable. So that's the knowledge test side of it that would need to do for uh, for first now. Um, so you know you might be interested in the other, other knowledge tests we've got. We obviously mentioned that the um, what the red belt one was uh, for yellow belt. They've got to explain the importance of preemption in self-defence. They've also got to ask uh, to explain what they need to do to ensure sparring is safe and productive. Um, on the seventh Q1, they've got to explain uh, the dangers of ground fighting and self-protection. They've got to be also explain uh, the history of the Pinan series and what their function is. Um, 
Um, on the next one up, they've got to ask, uh, they'll ask, be asked basic questions on the origins of karate. They've got to explain the anaerobic and aerobic energy systems and show how they relate to the demands of, of karate and self-protection. Uh, for fifth Q, they've got to explain uh, no first attack. Um, you know, the karate ni sentenashi and its impact on self-protection and the behavior of the karateka. Um, they've also got to explain the three types of combat initiative, you know, the three types of sen. Uh, next one up, they've got to explain the Shu Hari concept. Uh, they've got to list and explain the seven ranges of unarmed combat, which we just talked about. Uh, they've also got to explain the concepts of Jitsu and Do and the similarities and differences between the two. Um, next up, we've got, they've got to explain uh, submit a, a 500 word paper on the basic history of Wado and that should because that's obviously our core style but it should also explain um, why we're not Wado you know, although that's where we come from what other influence we've harded from what other sources and why we are what we are and also we, we ask them verbal questions on what traditional karate is and how that relates to what we do uh, what we're looking for there is an understanding that you know karate evolves and shouldn't be stagnant you know um, next one, we're looking for a written paper on the psychology and physiology of the uh, performance under stress, and this should include an understanding of both co cognitive and somatic anxiety and the effects on performance. So people need to understand the realities of what fear will do to them, and I need to make sure that they understand that. Um, for first cue, they've got to do a 750-word paper on the nature and purpose of kata, and I've just explained what first dan has to do. And then beyond that, of course, we've got the second dan, third dan, fourth dan syllabuses, you know, which obviously get um, you know a lot more in depth and do a lot more detail. But that's kind of how we do things, you know. And, and again, you know, I don't say I've never said that my way is the, the only way. What I will say, it's it's the best way for me. It might not necessarily be the best way for you. But these are the kind of things that I think a syllabus should include, and this is personally how we um, kind of implement it. Um, and I hope you found that interesting. That's probably going to be one of the longest podcasts we've done. <laughs> um, and that's just a stream of consciousness thing. You know, I just picked up the syllabus and started talking, but I hope that's of interest. And I hope it gives you some, uh, some food, uh, food for thought as well. Um, and to me, you know, they're the kind of things that I think uh, you know, a, a black belt um, should have, you know, with... Not necessarily for everybody, but certainly for, for us and for, for what we do. These are things that uh, I feel uh, uh, First Dan should, uh, should include. Well, that concludes this month's record-breaking podcast. Um, I'll be back with a normal length one uh, next month. And by next month as well, the new website will be uh, we up and running. I'd hope to have it up and running in time for for this month's podcast. But um, it's just kind of things kind of overtook me a little bit. And there's a few other things that have needed my attention. But uh, we're not far away now. And I, I'm, as I said uh, last month, I think you'll really like the uh, the new uh, the new look website and all its new functionality. So thanks once again for listening in. Massively appreciate it. Uh, thanks for sticking with me all the way to the end of this super long podcast and hopefully I'll see you next month okay take care have a good month bye now